I love those guys. I get to work with them almost every day. Um, if you can call what they do work. No, I love these guys. Um, family that we get to call family. We have a wonderful home that we get to call home. Uh, and it's just such a blessing to be here every Sunday uh, with my family, to be here every Sunday at this house. So I just want to say welcome home, welcome to Hillside Christian Fellowship, and we're getting ready to dive in uh, to the scriptures. But before we dive into the scriptures, I have a question. I never do this when I preach, um, but my brother-in-law, I was telling him what I was teaching on, and he goes, oh yeah, it's like that TV show. And I was like, oh, what TV show? And so I decided I'd open up with an interactive question. How many of you have ever seen the TV show Undercover Boss? Anyone ever see Undercover Boss? I've seen a few episodes of it, and they were really hilarious. Uh, it's like a boss, a CEO, or a CFO uh, of a company, a big company. They go undercover, work at their business, learn what it's like, the ins and outs, uh, and then they give people raises at the end of it or fire people and whatnot. But uh, I saw one episode that I thought was really funny, and uh, the episode, um, the boss who had established this company had built it from the ground up. He decided he'd go undercover, and he goes, and he gets a warehouse job with this company. I'm getting some static on these things. Uh, he's got a warehouse job, and he's terrible at driving the forklift, and on his first day, he's four hours into the company he started working undercover at ground level. He gets fired from the job that he started. And uh, it was just like, he's like, man, I don't know what I was doing. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And it was kind of funny. Well, today we kind of have an undercover boss situation. We have Joseph, uh, and he is second in command of all of Egypt. And uh, his brothers are there, and they have no clue it's him. And he's about to reveal that he's been uh, undercover and that the Lord's been doing some things in his life. So if you would, with me this morning, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 45. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen as well. But follow along with me as we read Genesis chapter 45. This is what it says. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh, they heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by the great deliverance. So now it was... Not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, and ruler through all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me the lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks and the herds, and all that you have." There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Let's stop there and let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much. God, for the opportunity that we have to come week in and week out. God, to come to church, to be in your presence, to be in the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we thank you for fellowship. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we get to study your word. God, we pray that this morning as we spend these next few moments looking at your word, God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up in our most holy faith. God, I pray that we would leave here different than when we came. God, that we would be challenged. God, that we would be inspired, that we would be encouraged. God, that we would be transformed by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. God, I pray that none of these would be my words, but God, that you would speak through me. Uh, and God, the, the truth of your word, God, would penetrate our hearts. 
and God, that it would direct the way in which we live. So God, we thank you. We praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. We've said it multiple times as we've been looking at the life of Joseph as we've been going through the book of Genesis that Joseph is this man who has so many parallels with Christ. And I, it was probably two months ago I gave some examples, uh, and there's a chance I'm gonna give some examples a little bit later on in the sermon. But I wanna open up with this quote by a very famous uh, sermon giver, which is called a pastor, uh, a pastor from the 19th century, you may have heard of him. Uh, he's a guy by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Anyone heard of Spurgeon before? Uh, for those of you who have not heard of Spurgeon, uh, he is one of really the movers and the shakers uh, of Protestant Christianity in the 19th century. He was born in the 1830s, lived all the way to the 1890s. Uh, he pastored an amazing church uh, in England, and the dude just wrote prolific amounts of commentaries and sermons on scripture. And this is what he says concerning Genesis 45 and Joseph and Joseph's relationship and parallels with Jesus. He said, it is not, however, my business this morning to enter into a full description of Joseph as a type of Christ, as I have rather more practical objects at hand. I shall endeavor in the, with the Lord's strength to deal with tried and troubled consciences, and if it shall be my happy lot to be the means of cheering some sorrowing hearts and opening some blind eyes to see the personal beauties and the intense affections of the Lord Jesus, I shall be glad to have been God's messenger to your hearts. And I thought that was really cool because he had the opportunity to break down some things very deep and theological and Charles Spurgeon was definitely able to do that, but he said, rather than doing that, I'm gonna approach some very physical, some very real things that people are going through. And we're gonna, by the grace of God, open some blind eyes, bring some joy to some downtrodden hearts. And so it is my prayer that this morning, as we look at the life of Joseph, as we look at what is Joseph saying to me? What is Joseph saying to me? What is Joseph saying to us? When we look at that, I pray that the Lord would open blind eyes to see him at work in our lives, uh, that the Lord would bring joy where there might be sorrow, uh, where there has seemed to have been destruction, that God would bring fruit where there seemed to be uh, devastation, that there would be glory from those ashes. And so this morning, uh, let's take a look at the life of Joseph and all that he has been going through. So Joseph uh, has been... In Egypt, if you remember, his brothers had betrayed him, and now he's been working this whole thing to kind of see where his brothers' hearts are. Uh, and I wanna read uh, another quote. This is by someone much older than Charles Spurgeon. This is by a guy by the name of Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus is a Jewish historian. Uh, he was a chronicler of uh, all things Jewish in the first century. Uh, and this is what he has to say about the story of Joseph. It's gonna sound very familiar to what we just read in Genesis 45, uh, but there's some things I really wanna extract from this portion uh, of, Joseph, uh, of Josephus' writing. It says this, and Joseph, betrayed by his emotion, no longer was able to bear the dissimulation of his anger, and he ordered those who were present to withdraw in order that he might make himself manifest to his brothers alone. And that when they had withdrawn, he revealed himself to his brothers, and he said, I commend you for your virtue and the goodwill with your regard to our brother. And I find that you are better than I had expected from the plotting with regard to me. I have done all this to test your brotherly love, nor do I think that you were wicked by the nature in my case, but that it was by the will of God who brought about our present future and enjoyment of the benefits he should remain well disposed to us. Therefore, having learned of the well-being beyond my hope of my father and seeing that you are such with regard to your brother, I no longer remember the sins that you think you have committed against me. I think that's really important there. He says, I no longer remember the sins that you think you have committed against me. I think that's so cool. But I shall cease my hatred for them because of your wickedness, and I concede that I uh, am grateful to your, as allies in the plans undertaken by God for this present. And I wish you yourself also forget the things, and rather to be pleased that the former ill-advisedness has come to such an end, and rather uh, than to be distressed or ashamed at your offenses. Let not this wicked decision that you have made 
um, case appear, therefore, to cause you pain, nor let your regret for it, since you have uh, consul, since your consuls did not make headway. Go, therefore, rejoicing at what has been brought to pass by God, and reveal these things to your father. So some really important things, some cool things that I want to pull from this, uh, as this is really Josephus's commentary and retelling of Genesis chapter 45, is we have Joseph painting this picture that man is not the one, that his brothers are not the one coming against him, but that in all reality, Joseph has the perception to see that God is doing something. And so the question I want to ask this morning, when we see Joseph hearing the plea of his brothers to save Benjamin, to do all these things. Joseph is brought to tears and he cannot hold it any longer. He sees the plan of God is coming to fruition and he knows that God is going to work something good because he has been faithful to the Lord. And the question that I wanna ask is if we could see with the same way Joseph sees, would we still act the way we act the majority of the time? Maybe there's one, or maybe it's all of you act like Joseph all the time, and maybe I'm just standing up here and I'm the odd duck in the room who when things go wrong, I tend to get a little frustrated. When I feel like people are coming against me, my first reaction is to, well, why are they coming against me? And what can I do to get against them? But if we were to see things the way Joseph sees things, would we act with Anger? Would we act with spite? Would we act with revengeful thoughts? Or would we see that there is something bigger at hand, that God is working his purposes out in our lives? It's all about perspective. Joseph was a man who understood perspective. And he was able to bring things into that perspective that God was working something out in his life. So a parallel between Joseph and Jesus Jesus also was a man of perspective. Jesus is fully man and fully God, so yes, he has the divine perspective. He knows the plan, but we're told in Scripture that he laid that aside and he became a man. And he's a man with perspective. He knew he must be about his father's business. And Jesus, being a man with perspective, Jesus being a man who taught us to be people of perspective, he told us some things. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, uh, that there was gonna be tribulation that was gonna come. And we as believers would need to be ready for the tribulation that was to come. Not only did Jesus talk about tribulation that was to come, but Paul talks about tribulation that was to come. Peter talks about tribulation that was to come. James, the author of Hebrews. Romans chapter five, we have Paul uh, speaking to us. In Romans chapter five, he says, hey, glory in tribulation. There's a great concept for us. Glory when things get really bad. Be excited when life sucks. That's kind of foreign to mankind. But Paul says, be excited when life sucks because when life sucks, that's the Matt Morris translation of Romans chapter five. He says, glory and tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. That's pretty cool. That when life gets messy, if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, we can know that God is doing something in us and that the thing he is doing in us will not disappoint. There is a future and the future is better. Chico's wearing a shirt and I love it. It says, the best is yet to come. If you are a follower of Jesus, the best is yet to to come, so no matter what circumstance or situation you're going through, know that the best is yet to come. Paul also mentions tribulation in many places in, in all of his 13 letters, but we got Romans chapter eight, verse 18, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. I mentioned that Peter has some things to say. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, Peter tells us, hey, don't think it's strange when you're going through it. Don't think it weird when things start coming crashing down around you. It's gonna happen. You put your faith in Jesus, have perspective. Have perspective. James tells us, it's a very famous portion of scripture, but James chapter one, count it all joy, my brethren, when you go through various trials. Count it all joy. Now, if I were to go around and we had like a little interview box and I got to interview every single person in the room and I were to ask you straight up, 
Now, the last time things got really messed up in your life, how joyful were you? I mean, on the spot, it's like, man, I was really joyful. I I have to be because I'm at church. No, I mean, most situations, we don't respond very well. But I think Joseph is giving us this example. The question is, what is Joseph saying to me? Joseph is giving us this example to be a person of perspective. Count it all joy when you go through various trials. Hebrews tells us that we're not supposed to give up because we know that we are striving for a reward. There is something at the end of the tunnel. We were in Europe uh, in July and we were driving through Switzerland. We were coming from Zurich down to uh, Italy and you go through the Swiss Alps. And I don't know if anyone's been to the Swiss Alps before or seen the Swiss Alps in pictures, uh, but it's beautiful. And these mountains, they're very sheer, they're very tall, and they're amazing. And the Swiss Department of Transportation, SDOT, as we'll call them, I don't know if that's actually what they're called, but the Swiss, the, the Swiss Department of Transportation, these guys know how to build tunnels. I mean, as we're driving through these things, we're like, these engineers are genius. You have tunnels that are going, at some places, 40 miles long through, through the, like, through the mountains, under the mountains, thousands upon thousands upon millions of tons sitting on top of this just little tunnel for a car to drive through. I mentioned the Swiss tunnels because the second you cross the border into Italy, you're still in the Alps, but now it's the Italian Department of Transportation, and they did not have it going on. Uh, The Swiss had it going on. But uh, the point I wanna make about that is a 40-mile-long tunnel that can seem kind of constricting. That can seem like the walls are coming in on you, especially when you realize, oh yeah, there's a mountain sitting on top of me. How many of us in our lives have felt like we've had a mountain sitting on top of us? Yeah, been there? Yeah. Uh, and it feels like you're never getting, there's hope at the end of the tunnel. We have perspective. If every Swiss driver hit that tunnel, and they were like, oh my goodness, it's never gonna end. And they pull over their car and stop their car in the tunnel and just give up. They never reach the other side. We are to be people who have perspective and to press on and to push forward knowing that there is a plan and that God has a plan for us. And this is all good. And this is all encouraging. But even the greats of scripture don't always remember this. Remember I was talking about Paul, who Paul even tells us will face various trials and tribulation and that we are to have perspective? Well, Paul, even Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he prays to the Lord three times that the Lord will remove some of the tribulation from his life. So things are going to get rough and so much so that we are gonna want them removed, but sometimes the Lord says, no, you're gonna keep going through it because I'm producing something, I'm producing something. I wonder sometimes, just because I'm weird, and for those of you who know me well, that is a true statement, but I wonder sometimes, what if the Lord would have answered Paul's prayer that the thorn be removed from his side the first time he asked it? Now, there's a lot of speculation there, and we don't even know, is the thorn literally a thorn and it's festering and he's got a wound? Is the thorn uh, some demonic presence? Is the thorn just some guy in his posse who's really annoying? We don't actually know exactly what the thorn is. But what if the Lord had removed the thorn and Paul was able to operate without tribulation? Would Paul have been as effective in his ministry? Would Paul have impacted Christianity the way he did? And we are here today on the shoulders of many of the things Paul had done. So I wanna encourage you, no matter what you're going through, big or small, the Lord has a plan and he's going to work it out. This is what it says, Paul writing to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, he says, the Lord works all things out to the good of those who are loved and who are called according to his purposes. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you're called, and the Lord has a calling on your life, and each one of our calls is different. But at the same time, each one of our calls is the same. Go and make disciples, go and tell people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so since we're called, that means God is going to work out to the good no matter what we're going through if we keep our eyes on him. So I wanna encourage you this morning, our first little lesson, what is Joseph saying to me? Joseph is saying to us, many thousands of years later, 
have perspective. Have perspective. You might be going through something just utterly terrible that I couldn't comprehend or imagine. You might be going through something you think it's small. No matter what you're going through, keep your eyes on Jesus. Run your race in such a way to win the prize, knowing that God is going to have a plan. God is working something together. Have the perspective that Joseph had so that he could say, I know that it wasn't you who sold me into slavery, but that God had a purpose so that the future could come to pass. Joseph and Jesus are people who have uh, very many parallels. I put some of them up at the, the screen, but we have envied and hated, without a cause. Uh, they both foretold that one day they would rule. He was sent by his father to seek out his brother's welfare. He was rejected and condemned to die. Uh, they both were sold for silver into the hands of Gentiles. They both became servants. They were both promoted to honor and glory and given a new name. Uh, and all people were commanded to bow down to them. Uh, that's just a few of like over 100 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. It's amazing. But one of these parallels I want to look at this morning is that Joseph is revealed to his brothers. He's revealed to his brothers here in this portion of Scripture. Genesis chapter 45, verse 3, it says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. I'm your little brother. Hello. It says here that they didn't know what to do because they were terrified. So Joseph had to say to them, no, 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 come a little closer. It's me. I'm not pulling your leg. I'm Joseph. I'm revealing myself to you. You see, Joseph was revealed to his brothers at an earlier portion in Genesis. He comes strolling down after he'd heard word that his brothers had gone to a different location. And he comes over the hillside and his brothers say, oh, look, it's the dreamer. What are we going to do with this guy? And they rejected him. And in their minds, they had killed him. And they didn't know that they'd ever see him again. So too was Jesus. When Jesus was revealed to his brethren, did they know him? No, Jesus said, man, if you knew, if you knew the scriptures, you'd know who I was. But you've rejected me. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. He came strolling into town. Did they worship Jesus and say, Hosanna, like the people? No, the Pharisees were plotting to kill him, and by the end of that week, so was the rest of the town. Jesus' brethren rejected him, and they killed him. And they didn't think they'd ever see Jesus again, but there's a day coming, as Zechariah tells us in Zechariah chapter 13, that Messiah will be revealed again to his people, and that all of Israel will come to Christ. There's a future day coming. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, that all of Israel will bow down before Messiah. So Jesus and Joseph, a revelation to their brethren. Jesus is going to be revealed at his second coming. And his second coming and his return does not just have implications for Jews and Judaism and Israel, but the return and the second coming of Jesus has implications for us as the church. And we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time today talking about the end times. We're not gonna spend a whole lot of today talking about the rapture and the, the millennial reign and Daniel 77. Those are all great topics and I love to talk about them. And prophecy and end times are amazing things. But there is a few things that I wanna draw correlation to here. Jesus' second coming is for the church something great. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells that he is going to prepare a place for his followers. He said, in my Father's house there are many mansions, and if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you, but I am going so that I, I may come again to receive you unto myself. The Greek word receive you is the Greek word Paralembano. Everyone say paralembano. Now we're all learning Greek, okay? You know about as much as I do at this point. This is great. Paralembano is correlated with another Greek word. And the other Greek word that it's correlated with and used in the same place as is the Greek word harpazo. 
Paralambano means to be received. Harpazo means to be snatched up. And the early church fathers, writing from the late first century through the second century, the third century, and the fourth century, unanimously believed in what we now call today as the rapture of the church. About the fourth century, theology began to change, and then the uh, standardized theology of the church that lasted for several hundred years, let alone a thousand years up until the late 1800s, was there was no talk of this paralambano. There was no talk about this harpazo, this snatching up, this rapture. But the early church fathers looked at the way paralambano, this Greek word meaning to receive to oneself, was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they put value on the word paralambano, and they used it in the same way as harpazo is used, that snatching up. We see harpazo used in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonica, or in 1 Thessalonians um, in Scripture, but we can see that there is this, the Lord returning to bring his church and his people back to him. Just as Joseph was revealed to his brothers, Jesus is going to, at a future date, reveal himself to us, the church, as well. Now, Pastor Matt, that's all good, but that's the future. What does that actually mean to me today? Well, that's why I said we're not gonna talk a lot about end times and prophecy. What does it mean to us in the here and the now? Well, in order for us to, I think, understand what is Paralimbano and Harpazo and Jesus and second coming, what does that mean to us now? I say we go back and we look at Joseph because Joseph gives us a clue of what Jesus is saying to the church today. I wanna go and I wanna look at Josephus' commentary on chapter 45 again where he says this, I no longer remember those sins that you think you have committed against me. I no longer remember. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you are one who has confessed your sin. What does the Bible say? It says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We are told that when we come to the Lord and we ask for forgiveness, he forgives us and he forgets our sin as far as the east is from the west. We're beginning to see in the life of Joseph these characteristics of Christ. What does he say then, though, in verse four of chapter 45? He says, and Joseph said to his brothers, please, Come near to me, and they came near to him. Joseph, when he revealed himself to his brothers at a second time, he said, come near to me. Come near to me. See who I truly am. You're terrified, I understand, but come near. Situation could get very bad, but I am Joseph, come near. How often in our lives do we not hear but Jesus is actually saying, hey, I know things are getting rough, but I'm Jesus. Come near, come near to me. John chapter eight, Jesus says some things. He says, if you wanna be my disciple, abide in my word and I will abide in you. In James chapter four, verse eight, Jesus says, we are told that Jesus says, if you would come near to me, I will come near to you. Just as Joseph was asking his brothers to come near to him, Jesus is asking the church to come near to him. I love the way the King's English reads Genesis chapter 45, verse four. It says, and Joseph saith, gotta add the TH to everything, and Joseph saith, come near, I pray ye. Come near, I pray ye, come near. James chapter four, verse eight, when it's saying, if you come near to the Lord, if you draw near the Lord, he will draw near to you. That come near is the Greek word engizo, which literally means to come into oneself, to draw into one. And Jesus says to us that he will engizo us if we engizo to him. In Matthew chapter three, verse two, the same phrase in Jesus is used when Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is coming near to you. Come near to the kingdom of God. He, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 uses this word in Jesus in reference to 
the blessed hope, the return of the Lord, his second coming, he says, the Lord is coming near to bring you near to himself. We have a promise that if we draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to us. And as Joseph called his brothers to come near, his brothers came near, and I can only imagine, and again, this is Matt reading into it, but I can only imagine as Joseph said, brothers come near, and they're kind of shaking in their pants, and they're maybe taking a step here and there, that Joseph is stepping down off of where he is, and he's coming to meet his brothers. And that he meets his brothers. We, it, it's the picture of the prodigal son when the prodigal son is coming home. The father doesn't just wait for him there. As he's coming home, the father comes running to him. And the promise is that if we come near to God, God will come near to us. So no matter where we are in our lives, no matter what our situations look like, our, 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 our horizon looks very bleak. The reality is if we have the perspective that God is at work, he's got something that he's doing and the encouragement is to come near. Come near and I will come near to you. Jesus uses another phrase that is much like this in John chapter eight. He says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And I've spoke about the word abide before. It's a, it's, it's a word I love. Uh, it's a word I began to love even more when I began to understand its true meaning. Uh, and so if you've never heard me say anything about this word, uh, we're gonna learn some pretty cool things today. And if you've heard this before, uh, let this just be a reminder and an encouragement to you. But the word abide, the Greek word is meno. And I always make the joke, not like when those little fish in the river, that's a minnow. The Greek word is meno. There was no laughs, so that's the last time I'm ever gonna use that joke. Yeah. Pull the Levi, yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, that's when the camera begins to zoom in on my face and says, good one, right? Um, the Greek word meno uh, is the word abide. And that word abide literally means to actively, continually remain with intention. To actively, continually remain with intention. When we hear the word abide, we don't actually, or at least me, I don't hear that initially. When I hear abide, I'm just like, okay, yeah, that's a fancy word of saying hang out. But it's so much deeper than just hang out. It's to be actively, continually remaining with intention. And here's the promise that we get from scripture, and I believe wholeheartedly it's what the Lord is saying to us through the life and the example of Joseph. But if we are to actively, continually remain with intention in the presence of God, then the promise is God will actively, continually remain in you and I with intention. I'm gonna say that one more time. If we are actively, continually remaining with intention with the Lord, then the Lord will actively, continually remain with intention in our lives. Let's unpack that just a little bit. Actively. When I think of active, I think of sports, and I think of sweat, and I think of movement. When was the last time there was movement and sweat when I was pressing in to the presence of God. When was the last time you were brought to a sense of exhaustion because of the activity in drawing near to the Lord? We should be very active in the way in which we press in to the Lord, whether that's our time in prayer, whether that's our time in the study of God's word, whether that's our time in just believing what he says he's going to do. We need to be active. But not only active, we're to be continual. It means that we are doing this on a regular basis. Because I think if we were to go by a show of hands and we were to say, when was the last time you were really active? Was it when things were rough? And we might say, yeah, man, I really had to press in because things got rough, so I was active. But then the question I would ask is, were you that active when things were easy? Or do we just get lulled into going through the motions and, okay, life's not hard right now, so I don't need to work hard right now. It's human nature. 
But I want to encourage us that just as active as we are when things are rough, we need to continue and be that active when things seem to be easy. To remain. Active's good, but I've seen a 100-yard dash. If you're saying, bull, it's done like in under 10 seconds. That was active, and he does it at every event, so it's continual, but the 100-yard dash is really not remaining. But then when you go and you watch a marathon run, it takes a lot longer. And you gotta remain, and you gotta know what you're doing, and you gotta be active, you gotta be continual, but you gotta remain, you gotta keep going, you gotta keep doing, you gotta, okay, I know I gotta pace myself here because there's a big uphill spot there, and then it's downhill from there, and you gotta be remaining in it. So prayer, Act, being active in prayer is good, but if you're only active for like three minutes once a week, that was active, that's good. But we're to remain. We need to put the time of drawing near, of seeking the Lord, and then it is to be with intention. Because activity, remaining, continuousness, those are all good, but if there's no intention, we're wasting time. We need to be intentional in the way that we approach the Lord. We need to be intentional with the way we draw near and we abide with the Lord. And the promise is, this is so cool, that the Lord will be intentional with us. That's exactly what Joseph was saying. When we look at Joseph, Joseph's perspective was that I know you didn't sell me into slavery, but that God allowed this to happen. God had an intention in the life of Joseph. And Joseph had perspective to see what God was doing. And when we have the perspective, we can see God's intentionality with us. God will remain with us. Did Joseph ever think the Lord was not with him? He gets thrown into a pit. I knew the Lord was with me. I get sold into slavery. I know God's with me. I've been put in Potiphar's house and things are going pretty good. God must be with me. And then everyone around was like, God is with him. And then his whole situation with Potiphar's wife shows up. God's with me. He's in jail. God's with me. He understood that God was remaining with him because he was remaining with the Lord. And he was continual, and God was continual with him. And God was actively at work in Joseph's life. God is wanting to be actively at work in our lives as well. And he says to us, come near to me, and I will come near to you. So the question of what is Joseph saying to us what is the life of Joseph speaking to us? Well, when we look at the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, we can see some of these things, that we are encouraged to have perspective and we are encouraged to draw nearer to the Lord. When things get rough, when things are easy, draw nearer to the Lord. Draw nearer to the Lord. Now, as we continue to look at the chapter of Genesis 45, we see that they are instructed to go back and to grab their father, Jacob. As I was talking with Pastor Dave this week about Genesis 45, he pointed out something that was very keen and that I just glossed over completely. But we have seen in the previous chapters of Genesis that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel when he wrestled with God, the old man, and then there's a new man. But we've seen in the story of Jacob that Jacob continues to operate the way he has always operated. So much so that the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that dying, Jacob had faith. We see him over and over again, even though he's been given a new name, he's been given this new man, he still operates as an old, uh, in, in his old self. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, Jacob's mentality, Jacob's heart, the way he's viewing things is that everything is coming against him. All the things around him are against him. And he just lives in that state that everything is against me, everything is against me. Even though God has been with him throughout, throughout all of his life and God had done so many amazing things in Jacob's life, Jacob's mindset was everything is against me. Jacob did not have the perspective that his brother had or, or, or that his son had for the majority of his life. But at the end of chapter 45 here, 
There's something so profound that I completely just glossed over. The previous verse, verse 27, says the spirit of Jacob, their father. Um, we see Jacob being referenced. But then when we get to verse 28, it says this, and then Israel said, it is enough. This is enough. The author of Genesis no longer references him as Jacob in this moment, but on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses says, then Israel. Old man, Jacob, everything is against me. This is terrible, everything is against me. But now as he's seen the will, as he's seen the plan, as he has seen God's hand at work in the life of his son Joseph, I can only imagine he is inspired by the perspective that Joseph has, that, hey, God's got a plan, it's gonna work out. That now here, coming to the end of Jacob's life, we see, and then Israel says, this is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. His perspective has changed. His perspective has changed from doom and gloom to, you know what? I think God's doing something. I have faith that God is at work. So I wanna encourage you guys with this as I'm gonna close and I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back. But no matter what you're going through in your life, it's all about perspective. And our perspective needs to be that God is at work, God is doing something. And if we focus our eyes on the Lord, if we come near to him, he will come near to us. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. If we abide in him, he will abide in us. If that is our perspective, I wanna encourage you this morning that that perspective will wear off on some other people. That perspective will begin to rub off onto other people and then other people who are going through similar situations, maybe larger situations or worse situations uh, or, or, or smaller situations. If we live in such a way with our perspective and our focus on the Lord and drawing near to the Lord, people will begin to see that and they will be able to say, man, it used to be doom and gloom, life used to suck, but you know what, there might be something about that God. That God that Dan believes in, you know, he's doing stuff. There might be something to that. Oh, that faith that Larry has, there might be something to that. And people's lives will be able to be changed for the Lord because of what the Lord is doing in your life. You never know who's watching. So we are to live with a perspective. Genesis chapter 45, we see that Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the guy who's in charge of at the time the greatest and largest civilization of the world, Pharaoh says, dude, what's going on in the room? And he asks the servants of the house, he says, what's going on with Joseph? He's losing his mind, he's crying. Who are those guys with him? And the servants say to Joseph, dude, Pharaoh, those are his older brothers. They sold him into slavery, all this stuff. And Pharaoh rejoices. Pharaoh rejoices that the Lord was doing something. So I wanna encourage you guys this morning. What is Joseph saying to us? What is Joseph saying to me? Have perspective and draw near to the Lord. Great opportunity that we get to draw near to the Lord is in services like this. And we sang the song this morning, Oh, come to the altar. And the altar is a place where we can come and we can ask for forgiveness. An altar is a place where we can come and we just cry out before the Lord, knowing that the Lord hears our prayers. And I'm, I'm gonna invite us all to stand. And we're gonna pray, and I'm gonna pray for us as we're coming to a close. But then as the worship team begins to lead us in this song, we're gonna do something a little bit different. If you feel comfortable, I wanna encourage you, there's no altar call of, 
If you want prayer for this, if you want prayer for this, no, the altar call is, the altar's open. And if you want to draw near to the Lord and actually have a physical act of stepping up, the Lord doesn't need you to actually stand up and come to the front of a elementary school gymnasium to meet him. He'll meet you where you're at. But sometimes for our own faith, there needs to be a physical action. And so I wanna encourage you, if you're going through rough times, if you're going through easy times, but you know you need to draw closer to the Lord. As we sing this song, Come to the Altar, I wanna invite you just to come to the altar and we're gonna worship God in this place for the next few moments. Then Pastor Dennis will close us in prayer. But would you pray with me right now? Dear God, we thank you for the examples that we have in scripture. God, every page is filled with example after example after example of what it means to know you. God, you are a God of love. You are a God of grace, a God of mercy. And God, you are a God who is working out his perfect plan. God, you are working out your plan and your plan is perfect. So God, no matter what we're going through, God, we want to acknowledge, we want to have the perspective that you are at work. God, when we might not see it, when the waves of the water are too high that we cannot see and our ship is being tossed to and fro in the sea, God, we wanna fix our eyes on you. Just as Peter stepped out of the boat and he kept his eyes on you, God, you did something miraculous. God, help us not take our eyes off of you, but help us to have perspective. God, thank you that your word reveals to us, God, that you, by the Holy Spirit and through the words of your son, Jesus, you told us that you're coming again. And God, to that we say, Jesus, come quick. But God, in the meantime, as we await that eternal receiving to you, that eternal drawing near, you still encourage us in the here and now to draw near and I will draw near to you, to abide in me and I will actively, continually remain with intention in you. God, so we thank you that you're not just a stone or a carved piece of wood, but that you are the living God, the creator of the universe, and you want to do something specific and individual in each and every single one of our lives. So God, we come to the altar. We draw near to you. God, we know that your word tells us you draw near to us. So God, we humbly enter into your presence. God, we thank you and we praise you. In your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.
coming to the altar with open arms because we know the Father's arms are open. Some of us might need forgiveness. We might need a healing. We might just need to call upon your name and say, God, here I am. I'm struggling in whatever area. And today we come and we give you thanks, God, that you are a God who hears. You're a God that answers and you're a God that delivers. Father, just we thank you today that we can come and we can worship and hear the truth of your word today. And like Joseph, Father, may we live lives of integrity and may we trust and believe. May we believe, God, for the tears that are shed today, they're not in vain. God sees the tears and he answers the prayers. So we thank you today. And as we leave this place this morning, we say, Father, may we leave with the power of your Holy Spirit, the love of Christ Jesus. And as your children, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen and amen. Have a wonderful afternoon.